0: time I ever heard jazz music, I have no recollection of it because I was so young. And um, because my father was a, an avid uh, listener to jazz, and so it was played in the house all the time when I was a kid, all the time because he had speakers in the downstairs room, all every downstairs room in the house, so that if he was moving around the house, he could hear whatever music he was listening to. And he was really. I mean, into, I sang um, before I could speak. I was
1: humming tunes off the radio when I was ten months old. Before I could say more than "Mama" and "Dada." I'm uh, I'm told this uh, from very reliable sources. Um, so, music was always very important to my life, and it like, was always music.
0: around My father was really into it, and he did. He was very interesting in some of the stuff he did. Like he would put words to solos so that we could learn the solos. Now he was not a musician in, in the sense he didn't play an instrument, but he would put words to solos and to Earl Garner records and to Miles Davis, and he would sing these little bits of solos to us, and we would sing them along with him. There was like a, an Al blues that went da 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 doo, da ba, 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 and his words for that were, that train is coming down the track, Woo. We'll, we'll, like so so and then so this was a great way of course of getting into the music and in fact you know, as a teacher of jazz now like we teach people, people say, to, to you know, learn things to like sing I
1: mean, Ireland's greatest the jazz singer I and mean, I cringe and with embarrassment because we I still don't think of myself as a jazz singer I think of myself as a singer who sings the popular songs of the 30s and 40s and 50s and okay I might have a flair I first became aware like that. I think probably so in
2: the 50s when I was at school people
1: have to make a living, but maybe the
2: most immediate thing was was actually by a a Britisher, George Shearing who emigrated to America and became a great commercial success the records were on 78 uh, I can remember it Yellow Label, NGMs and one of them was it's it's actually, believe it or not, sold a million copies, which was unheard of, you know there was um, The start of the tune with his quintet, a big hit and a big commercial success. And
3: I, I fell in love with that sound, I have to say, and, and I love uh, it to this day. I grew up in Dunleary, and uh, every Sunday morning George, in the Killiney Castle Hotel, Matt Fettis and his Dungeoneers, the bar was called The Dungeon, so Matt Fettis and his Dungeoneers would play up there, and they'd play, you know, New Orleans jazz. And my brother was a bit of a fan, actually, and uh, I think in one of those moments of, you know, get your younger brother out of the house for a few hours. He brought me up to one of these sessions up there and uh, I'd say I was eight or nine. I mean, I didn't think a lot of it at the time, you know, it didn't mean a whole lot at the time, but it really left, an, as I reflect on it, it really left an impression. And the impression the music left on me was really all about the groove and it was all about the rhythm. That seemed to be the thing that was different. And that still is the thing that's different about it, actually. That's still the thing that I relate most to about jazz. I think jazz can work on lots of different levels, but the kind of, you know, the the entry-level position, if you like, the thing that captivates people immediately is this very this kind of rhythmic life force that the music has when it's played right, you know. So the first time I heard it... That got me. I mean, like all, you know... It was a thriving situation my in, in Ireland then because there were and hundreds of, of
2: ballrooms and the dance band scene and as and such and was, was so, flourishing. You know, in all all Dublin alone now, there were, oh, yeah. I don't know, there yeah. might, might have been eight or ten permanent ballrooms like the Metropole and Cleary's and the Crystal and the the like and all these places which had resident bands like and they operated 6 or 7 nights a week and the people who played in them were full-time professionals. They didn't have a day job. As and as I found
3: myself working in England in the catering business in London. Um, and um, what I did was I took out a membership of Ronnie Scott's, and I had a sort of two-and-a-half, three-year period where I literally went to Ronnie Scott's every night of the week, I, you know, because working as a chef, I was working nights, and basically I'd get, a, I'd get a night bus back into the West End, I'd arrive at Ronnie's at about half one in the morning, and I'd stay there until half three or four, you know, until all the music finished. And over a two- or three-year period, I just, I really immersed myself in the music and I just heard so much great stuff you know. I still at that point didn't really have aspirations to be a musician but like something that happens to a lot of people who get into jazz is that there is a point in your relationship with the music where uh, in order to learn further about it you must put an instrument in your hands to really kind of you know strip the layers back and really get to the cut and thrust of how the music works. So I found myself buying a saxophone on my 21st birthday and I never looked back actually uh, you know well we have I say I never look back but you know the initial period was, was my father you know, uh,
4: bringing home Elvis Presley and Louis Armstrong records that maybe opened up my eyes because I, 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 I had a sort of classical music upbringing as so many kids at that age uh, not that we went on to do anything with it um, but I, I went twice a, twice a week to music lessons and enjoyed playing the piano and and uh, um, wasn't really exposed. Not that my parents hid it from me, anything. But but uh, I wasn't really exposed to, to jazz and uh, the popular music of the time was girl singers and the occasional man singer. And uh, I mean, I go back to a time when the top twenty was uh, on a, on a Sunday night. You'd hear it on Radio Luxembourg, but it was based on sheet music sales, which is kind of amazing. And um, then uh, I had a motor accident. Uh, back in the early sixties. And uh, I was in hospital for a long time and then uh, uh, slightly invalided at home. And uh, I didn't go back to my piano lessons, but somehow or other, I I don't know if I came across it in a bunch of sheet music or something like that. I found the the sheet music of the St. Louis blues, classic blues structure. And uh, I sat down as if it was a piece that I was learning for my classical music teacher and I learnt off this that's that tune and and thus the structure seem silly to say it or or to put too fine a, a line around things but for me jazz has always had to have a blues feel to it it may sometime. not necessarily be so a strict... More jazz so many as such, things, you know, it's all kinds of... area of um, improvisation. There are
1: all sorts of different ways, uh, so like you, if you jamming. think now, the kind of music that's Neither going to work, modern jazz. jazz. It's
4: very, empowering music. Jazz. It's
1: very empowering music. When you hear I a live jazz band to out- playing, a really stimulus. good group musicians playing this music something happens and it's the energy in the air that you feel It just the air is just it's tangible this feeling of it's almost like um, you're on the edge of your seat and they're on the edge of their seat because every every change every move in the bar is new it's not something that they've practiced
4: it's not a formula it's freedom it's self-expression it literally got me in the gut I could feel my, my stomach contracting really when I heard certain totally. sounds
1: totally. In the interreaction. For me, always each with, other. With, with certain musicians, is, uh, I, I say, does he uh, make the hair part stand on the back of my neck? The I mean, I... performance is amazing.
0: I remember as a, like a nine or ten year old sitting with my back to the stereogram, what was known as the stereogram, listening to Charles Mingus' Wednesday night prayer meeting from Blues and Roots which is a visceral piece of music, and uh, sitting with my back to it, with it up to 11, blaring and absolutely having goose pimples with the power of that music. Now, I had no rationalities a while. Well. is, this this sounds very, I've had to define this and define this and define this, of course for myself, it's improvised music that is informed by the Afro-American rhythmic tradition. That's as narrow as I can get it and as broad as I can get it at the same time. The music is such a broad church and all improvised music is not jazz, so it's not fair to say something is improvised music. Um, and the Afro-American rhythmic tradition involves many things like funk and, and uh, reggae and swing, of course, which is the absolute basic, uh, basic, the fundamental rhythm of jazz. But having said that, if somebody's not playing 4-4 four, four swing, I don't think it's right to say that they're, by definition, not playing jazz, a la the way, say, Winter Marsalis would say. Um, but uh, So I think that it's a much broader thing than that. But I do think that there has to be certain elements involved in the music that do connect it to a tradition and that to me is the rhythmic tradition of afro-american music so improvised have music have a, a specificity that, it or music, a maybe particu- I can a particularity uh,
5: but i'm damned if i can tell you what it is and
4: i just know what it does to me rivets me makes would be all of me pay attention this is when it's good really annoys me when it's bad and now you're going to ask me what's good and
1: what's bad And I remember I don't really um, know. a couple of years ago seeing Brad Meldow in Vicker Street on the piano and I'm always saying this, but it's so true. It felt like the audience went in, sat down, he came out onto the stage, and everybody took a breath and went and at the end of the concert, they all went it was just spectacular, and it was the relationship he had with the music it was it was his lack of need to communicate in any other way with the audience other than playing the piano. And everybody just loved him. There was absolute silence in the place. you're thinking too much you're not doing it you know so there's a there is a fine line there and it's to try and get to the right side of that line where you're doing where it's doing you really that's what it should be and I mean I've rarely had gigs where it's been doing me and I know when I've had them I've felt absolutely wonderful. You know, there is nothing like the feeling of getting out of your own way. And letting if there is a tingle,
3: it's that, you know, that experience on a kind of visceral, hard, in you know, it's your gut level of experiencing what swing happen. is, which is a feeling of being kind of swept along on this absolute propulsive groove, you know, that it really, really is exhilarating. It's really such an exhilarating experience. And that is still the thing that is kind of most important. For me, in the music. You know, maybe that's that the difference that. It may not be swing in a traditional sense. You can take risks in the music, the music because
2: when it comes to the, the solo playing, it's not written yeah. down. you yeah. mean yeah.
3: depending
2: on it's how things chance. are in the night, will I go this Sometimes way, will I go that way? Which obviously doesn't
1: happen with so um, written music. Play every player takes risks. On, uh, key, and it, then, if it happens. so like taking a chance and it pays off.
2: Maybe many I've times. However, briefly that might
3: yeah. seem. It gives you a lot of satisfaction. I and I think that also comes back to the improvisation. When it clicks, it's it's a emotional thing of fulfillment
0: inside of that it's uh, it's it's uh, like being fed kind of thing. in a way. I just actually came up with that little motif at the beginning, which is that blah blah, and it, which is like not as, which is differently going blah blah, and somehow it, I liked the whole. The, the feeling of that those notes of it going blah because it was like first of all you could think of it was like a hula hoop effect where you actually strike the strike the hula hoop with the stick. And say blah because each one of those blah seems to propel the note forward somehow. And then the um, then the more opposite I thought idea of that visually was the idea of a stone skimming. So that it goes it comes and it strikes the water and goes blah and it goes on a bit and it bounces again goes blah. And so, in the melody of the opening melody, particularly, the whole thing is riddled with these like skimming, this skimming idea. So that's really why I came up with the idea. But the actual melodic motif, just I don't know, I don't know where that came from. It just came. I mean, usually for me, when I'm writing a piece of music, one or two ideas is enough to produce the piece. While well, I'll then I will then manipulate the material and, and until I like what I hear. And I will use it. And of course, I will use some some uh, structural and formalistic things that I understand to work with the material. <laughs> Perception of what is going on. Most music is judged often by the result. In other words, you go to hear Beethoven Fifth Symphony, you go to hear you to do "Where the Streets Have No Name" or something. You you have an expectation of what the result of this piece is before you go and hear it. That can't happen with jazz. This is a very difficult thing for an audience. Jazz is the only music which is about the process rather than the result its dynamic is completely involved in the production of music as a social means of social connection and, uh, and communication between the musicians and the audience the way to enjoy jazz is to be enjoy being there and witnessing this communication because at the end of the piece it's finished it will never exist again so you you've no result there is no result at the end of the piece the result has disappeared there hasn't been a result so that's difficult for an audience. How? What are they watching here? They're watching four people communicating, is what they're watching. And they're watching this piece of art, if, if, if it is a piece of art, uh, or this piece of music, being created before their very eyes, and then at the end of the piece, it disappears. In a way, it would be like going to see a painter paint a painting. When the painting is finished, they burn it. Or, even stranger than that, actually more accurate one is, as they paint it, it erases as they're painting. So by the time they're finished painting there's actually nothing there. That's a, that's a kind of a strange thing to think about, but that's actually what's going on in the jazz. It's happening as you watch it, but it has no past and it has no future. It only has a present. Supposing we take say a tune like exactly like you which in the sheet
2: music or whatever as as it was known there would be And so on. So, if you want to improvise on that, um, what you retain is the harmonic structure, which is... which is very basic, three chords. So, a, a very simple approach would be something like this.
0: There's often, in the, to the person who, who's not familiar with the music, there's a feeling that they play the melody and then they go off on their own for as long as they like and then they play the melody again and they have a great time in the middle and I'm bored stiff. And the thing about improvised music, I,
2: I couldn't do that again now for a million pounds and will never do it again.
0: And if I played it again now, it'd be very much different. But the reality is that the musicians that are following a very they have patterns head, strict and distinct form most of the time if they're playing structurally. I certainly could not repeat that. And, and the best way I think ever. to describe that is in terms of the limerick. Now, if you think says, of the poem of a limerick, we yeah, all have work. an internal sense of form of the limerick. So the, the one that I always use to, to explain how we can see when form is, is gone askew is to use the one that there was a young man from Japan whose limericks never would scan. When asked why this was, he said, it's because I try and fit as many words into the last line as I possibly can. Now, the humour in that limerick, if humour there is, is that the form is screwed up. The form has gone astray. So usually when I will tell that joke, hopefully people laugh a little bit. And then I will ask them, "Okay, what's so funny? And then they say, well, it's all wrong. And then you say, why is it all wrong? And then what happens is, Inevitably, we get into a Byzantine explanation of why it's wrong. Oh, it's a five-line poem. And then you ask, well, is every five-line poem a limerick? Uh, no. Well, what's the difference? Well, the first two lines are... And you eventually get into the fact that the limerick is a five-line poem in which the third and fourth line rhyme with each other but are shorter than the first, second and fifth line. It's really difficult to explain the limerick. It's it's not. It, it takes a while. But people don't sit there and go, now hold on, he's just said something and let me figure this out. They react immediately to the joke because they have an internal clock which counts out this limerick form. And the limerick form is internalized over years and years of listening. Now when a jazz musician is playing a blues or a, something based on the chord changes of I Got Rhythm, that's exactly what's happening. They're playing over and in totally understood form that they've heard thousands of times and they've played thousands of times. So therefore this little clock is going on inside them that tells them where they are in the song. And everybody else who's playing or not playing but just listening, musicians waiting to take their song, are also following that same clock. And that's how they know when to take over because they know that the other person is going to end at the end of their form and therefore they will take over like a relay race, take the baton at the beginning of the form. So that's what's going on. They're not just playing randomly, they are actually following an internal structure to the piece? A tune like that, it has a standard form.
2: it's 32 bars long in four sections of eight bars each. So if I play the tune through once with the melody, which is 32 bars and then if I do one improvisation, which is once through again, 32 bars again so at the end, the last two bars of of the improvisation would be then back to the melody So that's very structured. Well, the improvisation is structured over the over the chord sequence, but the, you can't in a situation like that you can't deviate from the the structure of the tune. It's in really it's A A B A in in that form. The first A section is eight bars. The second A section is eight bars, and it's almost identical. The B section, which in this case is it's called the bridge or the middle eight, and it's. That's the B section, and then that's eight bars, and then we're back to... ..which is the A section again. When the improvisation starts, it has to stick to that format, A, A, B, A. And if I play it once through with the melody, then once through improvised, then someone else wants to play it, he or she has to stick with that 32 bars, and then at a given nod or whatever... We've played enough improvisation. We're going to play the tune once more and
3: finish it. So, and that's that's the structure. We spend a lot of time talking about the, the the alphabet of jazz, but really the the real deal is the poetry of jazz. You know, and the alphabet of jazz is the chords and the tunes and you know all the different devices. And this is sometimes like a wall to people. I know people are intimidated by it. You know, um, but you've just kind of tried... and. That's a life's task, learning about that, you know. But there's no reason that not knowing about those things should deny you the pleasure of the music, one iota, right from the first time you go to a gig. Anybody can learn to play jazz, anybody. You know, it's, there's this idea around that, you know, jazz musicians spring from some incredible font of creativity direct from their mammy's wombs, and they're different from other musicians. I, I, I always talk it about the improvising impulse, and
0: I've always made this point um, that if, if you ever go into a room music, and, and of see of maybe a two-year-old child, baby child baby sitting baby on its own playing and it doesn't know you're watching and they start with blocks or something and they're doing something and they're singing those. And they're not actually singing any song, any recognisable song, because what they're doing is actually they're improvising and the reason they're improvising is because they feel good and they feel good, they therefore feel an impulse to sing. The fact that they have no song is immaterial to them because they feel good singing, so they sing. As I get older, I'm convinced that that's really what we should all be trying to do, just Following that impulse, we feel good, or we feel bad, or we feel so. Therefore, we express that through music, and that's incredibly simple. There's a good story about um, Dizzy Gillespie when he died. A friend of mine who teaches in Berkeley College of Music was rung up by uh, a newspaper columnist to ask for some quotes about Dizzy Gillespie. You know what? You know his his feelings on Dizzy. And in the course of this interview, the interviewer said, "Do you think that Dizzy knew what he was doing?" And Larry, this guy, said, "Well, he said, I don't. I don't think he really." understand the question that you're asking me, essentially what you're asking me is, could Dizzy Gillespie, with the aid of a blackboard and chalk, go out in front of a group of academics and with the aid of that chalk, blackboard and notepaper make them, show them what he was doing in a way that they would understand then the answer is, I don't know. But if you think he walked out there every night with his trumpet and was totally amazed at what came out at the end of the horn every night then it's ridiculous. Of course Dizzy Gillespie knew what he was doing. Of course Charlie Parker knew what he was doing. Of course Louis Armstrong knew what he was doing. That wasn't just coming out as a total surprise to those guys. It was it was deliberately done. They knew it. They knew exactly what they were doing. Now, whether they could take a piece of music paper and say, this was D minor 7 and I played this scale over it is a totally different question.
1: It's you're different. It's a different kind of music and you need to be open to, to, so to letting yourself... That, listen you don't you don't necessarily have to understand it even to to listen to it or to enjoy it but you have to be open to letting it affect um, you and i think sometimes i do it myself if you hear something you can kind of shut yourself off and go oh no i don't i don't understand that you know but if you sort of relax and just think okay well i'm just going to give this a chance suddenly something opens up to you but, of course, in Ireland, I know from the little bit of research I've done into the history of jazz in Ireland, that, of course, for, you know, for, for many, many years, jazz was taboo here, you know, totally taboo. So perhaps there's some kind of um, inbred fear of this, the devil's music, it used to be called, you know. Um, in, in Irish audiences, I know it's certainly, in, in Europe, it's very, you know, it's, it's, a, it's as normal as going out to any other kind of concert jazz. I'm so because you hear all these stereotypes and I know some people who think that there is no other music in the world but jazz. And, uh, th- you know, they would call themselves a true jazz lover. I'm spe- thinking of particular people and I think that's pretty sad, really. You know, I, I do. But yet, if you go to a gig, you could find a 17-year-old and an 80-year-old sitting side by side and totally loving the music. And there's one thing about that music in that it is it is so unageist and it really is true you can go to a jazz concert and there'll be all ages all classes and they will intermingle and it's all because they have this kind of thing towards the music some people obviously the older people might have a lot more experience and knowledge and the younger people are learning and they seem to be able to communicate and share that sort of love. Uh,
3: yeah, there's no doubt and about it. it. The My audience friends, um, has that. changed significantly and continues Was to change. It? And I think that, um, I that this is not necessarily a good thing. This is the only thing. This is the. Thing uh, the, audience, is the audience is a lot younger to to than it used, used to be. To and it's and it's uh, because, if you look at the um, jazz, like all kind of you know jazz, niche art forms, is under the threat the from the encroaching, you know, generic mass culture that we live in. You know, this is a music that celebrates, uh, really, truly celebrates individualism and diversity, the very the very things that mass culture kind of wants to gobble up.
0: I think, first of all, there's greater availability of music. Um, you can actually hear some jazz a bit easier than you could back in the 70s, or certainly the 60s. So people are more aware of it. Also, there is a really a, a, a certain level of the audience who really do want to find something that is different and that is a little bit challenging, maybe. You'll always have that, that group of people. And I think in rock music, I think it's fairly well agreed that there has never been a more stagnant time for for the music in the sense of everybody playing retro stuff rather than new stuff being created. And I think jazz does offer some kind of alternative to somebody who's a bit more curious about music.
2: They used, yeah, to, they used to be called like dives, so like in basements and things you know, like that. And smoke for the awful. But that's kind of that the place that obviously now
4: changed, the the change. and the smoking necessary. thing is gone, which is. Uh, depends good on for everybody. the type of jazz, depends on your humour, depends on the size the of the jazz. The great thing nowadays is a whole number quite of things say um, in Dublin. I don't know that jazz is or traffic venue, or even should have. A, a big stage, a young audience as opposed to the And the auditorium is very or, or basic other. but it, the sound um, is
2: terrific in there acoustics to terrific. a certain extent um, and
4: was a little bit the
2: It's in the centre uh, of Dublin uh, somebody like myself
4: in uh, the, uh, people don't have to come dressed Dublin in the
2: and sort of they get great audiences. audiences 50s, so much, in fact, that over the last uh, few years now, that I'm, I'm not saying that we were. Uh, the promoters we, we, are able to bring we, uh, in
3: um, it as the music of Revolt, top name but it, it acts, you know, make you a bit different. And, and you met a better class it, of girl.
2: It, generally speaking, I think that it pays, you know
3: there are a lot of jazz fans out there who are collectors, because I know it's well documented that he who dies with the most toys wins. You know, men seem to need to collect something, whether it's Beatles and matchboxes, or whether it's football cards, or, or whether it's the cars themselves. You know, the richer you get, the toys seem to get much bigger. And there seems to be this curious thing where you get a lot of collectors who happen to be in jazz as well. I mean, this absolutely um, kind of psychotic need, frankly, to have these huge record collections, which you never can listen to. I mean, I know people that have three, four, five thousand CDs. It's not that uncommon, you know, and you can never ever listen to that music. And it's just this sort of pathological need to have all the stuff. And the same thing can kind of apply to going to gigs, you know. You know, sometimes I think people really don't really want to go to the gigs or don't really want to buy into the music but they'd hate to think that they, they, they couldn't have that trophy on their particular gig wall, so they'll go, they'll go to the show regardless, you know. It's also a gender thing. I think that you get a lot of older jazz fans, and they tend to be men, and frankly, their wives are just sick and tired of going to jazz gigs. You get a lot of Johnny no at jazz gigs, you know. I do see certain gigs where the wives come out, and it's always very interesting who those artists are, because to my mind, they're the artists who are really kind of conveying something universal.
5: You know? When
1: I say it's a man's world, I don't mean that you're excluded as a woman, it's just that it's a different world for you as a woman. Obviously, if you were a stunning singer, we say like Ella Fitzgerald, or Sarah Vaughan, or Carmen McRae, or Peggy Lee, you'd have a huge respect. And I'm not saying I don't have; I do. But um, and I am respected. I know that. But it's a different. It's a different kind of singing. They would be the kind of singers that I would aspire to being but will never be, because they had the ability to improvise. And they could play with the tune, whereas it's not my thing. It's not something I can do freely. And I think if you uh, can't mean, there do something is, you know, like that, the whole thing that actually, you know, the
0: fast true. show, they used to do well, this well, jazz club jazz thing, thing and all, all, all that stuff. Dance and, dance you know, and just there was definitely the a stereotypical, so anyway, let's say, when you, hear something like that, uh, you still get it to some degree. British jazz fan that that kind of spilled over here. You know, the kind of uh, anarchy kind of middle-aged, middle-class person who was interested in collecting everything Bunny Bergen recorded, especially between 1923 and 19... You know, this sort of stuff. Kind of clubby things that men like so much, the whole idea of belonging to societies and swapping pieces of arcane information. Unfortunately, that that puts women off the music, I think. And and so you get this macho environment, which I think is extremely unfortunate. Um... It puts people off the music, and I, I, I feel very strongly about it, actually. I feel very strongly about it in the same way that I feel very strongly about the elitism of classical music. I really feel that it's terrible when music is claimed by a group of people, and it's terrible when it's thought to be a possession of people. And in jazz, sometimes people think that you can't really know about jazz unless you have every record that Wayne Shorter recorded between 1964 and 1967, ignoring the fact that Wayne Shorter probably doesn't have every record he recorded between... And he probably never couldn't care less... I think women do have a problem with that. They have a problem entering into the thing where these guys are all obviously giving each other knowing nudges and winks when people play certain things or, or if you have this record and they're showing their records to each other and they have their magazines. It's a, It gives off a macho vibe. And of course the music's traditionally been played by men, mostly because of the social background of the music at the time. At one time all classical music was played by men. I'm very hopeful that like classical music eventually there will be an equal number of women playing the music as there is men, but it will take time.
1: I do know and it is difficult to know sometimes and sometimes you'll be at a concert and you'll hear the silent the one hand clap going somewhere you know you think, oh my god you know and then suddenly everybody's clapping it's that they want to and I think really sometimes I find it very um, irritating this applause after every solo because the guy who's coming in on the next solo the first three or four bars are gone because people are still clapping and that drives me mad because sometimes they'll have a wonderful intro into their their solo you know and you're kind of you've missed it so um, I think that, yeah, that kind of etiquette is not really defined either. You can or you can't, and and I mean some people do, and, and once one or two do, the whole audience start and it's on for the night you know, but then I've been to places where they don't clap at all. Because of course, really uh, I mean on the one thing. hand jazz
3: gigs do look very informal, but actually there is there are quite strict rules of engagement when you're at a jazz concert, and I know that this is something that intimidates people when they come to concerts for the first time. Uh, and it's not unlike classical music, like one of the things I can ne- never understand going to classical concerts or recitals is the fact that you can 't clap between movements you know you hear some amazing piece of music, I mean really, really moving or whatever, and your immediate reaction is to jump to your feet and applaud the musicians, but instead, you know you have to sit there and you know there 's this sort of pregnant pause while the pages get turned you know and then they move on to the next movement uh, on the other hand, with jazz, I know one, that one of the things that really freaks people out is the whole business of clapping after solos you know um uh, and the bottom line with clapping after solos is that if you think the musician played their arse off then clap them and if you don't don't you know but uh i always notice it at concerts where there's like a lot of new blood at the gig is that the the applause from the kind of greenhorns always comes in the wrong place you know like they'll hear an eight bar drum break and they'll you know break into applause and um it's actually excruciating for them because then the drummer keeps on playing, you know, and they're like the one person clapping like this. And, I, and that's, that's embarrassing for people when it happens. I actually love to see that happen. I really, really love it. I mean, I know that for the kind of jazzerati, as I call them, you know, they, they look around and they say, God, doesn't know anything, doesn't, doesn't even know what an eight-bar break is. But the very fact that this person is here and clapping in the wrong place means that they're taking a chance and they're coming to the music for the first time. And the more applause that I hear in the wrong place in concerts, the more I know that I'm doing my job, which is... You know, getting people to hear the music because uh, the real challenge with turning people onto jazz is getting them to the club. You know what I mean? Because once they're there, I listen to quite a lot of music now. um,
2: I get obviously a lot of pleasure still from the kind of music that when I I was starting out and music of the 60s and the the way jazz developed from that. Uh, but to say now that uh, either, the, like, you can say that, oh, the, all that stuff, 60s, was awful, which is is wrong as well. And then you can get the other viewpoint saying, um, oh, no, no, don't listen to that modern stuff. That finished with Charlie Parker and Miles Davis. That's very wrong now, because there's, there's a lot of wonderful music being played and written now, you know. <laughs>
5: All right.
1: About music is that you have to be doing it for the right reason, and what I've found that certainly in latter years is that the less I do it as a means of making a living, the more real it is, and the more I enjoy it. But I think the minute you turn music into something like a job, it becomes something else and it eats you, it eats you up inside because you're using this thing which is so uh, fragile to try and, and make a living. And you you end up turning yourself into a mad person because you're all the time contradicting the little thing down in your soul that's really real and wants to flower.
0: In the end, you have to love playing this music because... The otherwise the rewards are very hard to comprehend. So it's always gonna be a difficult music to make a living and it's always gonna be a difficult music to to, um, to you know, to live with and, and and to get the rewards for the kind of work that's necessary just to be able to play it.
5: Nah, <laughs> but the problem, the problem we will
2: have with it is because the reason it sells is not because some flashy musician has put loads of work into it, not because some oh, amazing, oh, amazing no, producer. No, it, no, no, it really because some that. cute it's girl. sings it. it That's the problem. That's yeah, why everyone gets angry because it it's doesn't sorry, matter who she is of course, but it it's not going to work. It's not going to work. She writes the song. Do get angry when you see a cute girl?
5: That was <laughs> another radio break. That's a
2: whole arm show. I mean, if she wrote the song, but it would not work. Exactly.
3: Sing or not?